Hello and welcome to the No Longer Be Children podcast. I'm your host, Josiah Meyer, and we are in pursuit of a mature and stable Christian worldview. And today we're going to talk about Marxism. And uh, if this is your first, if you're just dropping straight into this, really encourage you to go back and listen to the previous podcast. It's not too long. It's got a really great host. And um, it, I'm not going to retell you about the ideas that I talked about in the last one. I'm just going to assume that you've listened to that. Um, and so I'd encourage you to listen to that or else um, some of the things I say might not make sense. So we've been talking about the Enlightenment and how that moved us towards um, the foundations of, uh, of Marxism. So Karl Marx was born in 1818. Um, you know, the, the Enlightenment basically ended the year before he was born. Not that, I mean, people didn't wake up in 1818 and say, oh, the Enlightenment's over. Of course, it's just in hindsight that we talk about the Enlightenment, you know, being founded within that time. But these ideas were very much in circulation and, and very much were in control of the academy, of, of the high, the institutions of higher learning. He was born to privilege in Germany. He was well-educated uh, in Germany. And Germany at this time was really um, the intellectual center of the world. It still in some ways is, although... Uh, the United States has taken over in some ways, but um, if you want a really good education, you still would, I mean, I would have loved to have studied at a German university, uh, just didn't have the means to do that. But, um, and the, depending on the subject, if you study theology, for example, uh, or philosophy, German is still kind of probably the language you need to learn. Um and so, anyways, he was born kind of in the center of, of, uh, of, into a good place to get a the the world a world leading education for his time. Uh, his thoughts had him exiled to England, and he spent the rest of his life um, writing in England. Uh, he never picked up a gun or did anything revolutionary, but he he published. Um, so uh, Marx wrote De Das. Capital, I'm not sure which language that is, it's probably in German, uh, three-volume work, and then a more popular pamphlet called The Communist Manifesto, which is sitting on my shelf over there. Um, and uh, this smaller book, The Communist Manifesto, uh, was written in, in, in partnership with Frederick Engels, um, lesser-known uh, um, partner of, of Marx, and uh, really laid the foundations in a popularist way, um, in a way that many people could understand very readily, of what his new idea was, what Marxism was, and this is the idea that, that really took over the world, or a large portion of the world uh, in the 20th century, and then, um, you know, still today is a, is a huge force. By the way, um, when I say 20th century, I mean the 1900s. When I say the 17th century, I mean the 1600s. Uh, just so you know what I'm talking about, that's the normal way of saying it, even though it's kind of strange. Um, so his basic idea is that society progresses through dialectic. Um, well, society progresses through Hegelian conflict. So society is part of a dialectic. There, there's always a synthesis and an antithesis, or, uh, a thesis and an antithesis. All society is made up of these warring factions. There is no one story. There's always two stories. There's always this competition. There's always this tension. So the 
the fundamental way of looking at society is dialectic intention that there's you know good good guys and bad guys there's black and white there's there's these two poles and the way that society progresses is through what hegel described this this through conflict you know when when these two warring factions you figure out who the two factions are and you tell them to fight and then as they fight there's going to be this higher synthesis they're going to move towards you know um a higher unity that was higher than either of them individually and this is really how we move forward this is evolution this is this is progress is when these two factions can fight and then move towards a higher synthesis um he really took the ideas of rousseau um to a new level rousseau said that nobody can profit except at the expense of another um and uh Marx really believed and you know this was during the time this was during the time of the industrial revolution the industrial revolution is 1760 to 1840 um but and so it would have been kind of during his childhood and 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 young adult years uh but certainly you know the this continued um the the Enlightenment led to the Scientific Revolution, which led to, you know, steamships. The, in, in, the, enlight, the Enlightenment led to uh, the Scientific Revolution, which led to the Industrial Revolution. And so in England and in Europe, you know, they, they discovered steam power. They discovered, you know, all sorts of new uses for metal. They discovered all this new technology, um, advances in medicine, advances in, you know, chemistry, and just all, all these things exploded. And that was really great for a lot of people, but also it meant that there was a new need for factory workers. Um, and so I think that that plays a pretty crucial role in understanding Marx because there were a lot of people that owned the factories that you know invented things and then had people make them for them. But there were also a lot of people that just, you know, nine to five went in, well, it was, you know, and even longer hours than that, not getting paid a lot, a lot of exploitation of children, a lot of exploitation of, um, you know, the working class, you know, would have to work in these cold fire, coal fired plants, go home to the places where the smoke from the coal factories was filtering down and making everything filthy. And, uh, you know, you had little kids that had to climb through chimneys and sweep them and get tuberculosis and, uh, and, um, and all sorts of diseases from the terrible living conditions. So, so certainly there was something to point to when he said there's the rich people that are profiting from this and there's the poor people that are suffering that you know their the wealth of the rich is built on the backs of the poor um but he made this into a universal principle that there's always this in fact he gave them a name that the rich are the bourgeoisie and that the poor are are the proletariat and he said that these are the two essential poles of society this is this is the dialectic that there are the rich there are the poor there's the proletariat class and there's the bourgeoisie class uh and it, it goes beyond just money there's also power there's also education remember marx had been you know born into germany and born into the social elite where he got this really great education whereas the chimney sweep that cleaned his chimney as a child wouldn't have had access to education wouldn't have had access to sanitation wouldn't have had access to food at that crucial time of development in his young life when his brain was developing. Um, whereas Marx, you know, it, 
this is something that I just found out recently that is if kids are malnourished for um, the crucial time in their life, I think it's something like five years up to 12 or something. If they're malnourished during that time, their brain will not form adequately and they'll be intellectually stunted the rest of their lives, which is why child um, nutrition is a really huge concern for, um, I, I mean, chronically malnourished. Uh, you don't have to worry about feeding your kids Fruit Loops and they'll end up stupid, although Fruit Loops is never a good idea in the morning. Um, but what I'm talking about specifically is like real, like starving malnutrition. And this is why, you know, the UN is really prioritizing child nutrition around the world because if we can get these kids nourished, then they're going to be smarter and that's the main factor of, of wealth development uh, throughout the rest of their life as they have the mental capacity to work well. Um, but he's got, you know, he sees these bourgeoisie that he was born into that have wealth, that have privilege, that have power, that have economic status, that think that they're better than others, that think that God has given them the divine right to rule, that think that this is how things should be. And then he sees that there's the, the working class, the bourgeoisie, that actually do the work, <clears throat> that aren't paid adequately, that, um, you know, are never given the same kinds of privileges. Now, I do want to mention here, I'm going to come back to this later on, but many people were also seeing this, and many Christians were on the ground working, and many um, social reformers were also at work to fix these injustices. I mean, the injustices really were brought on. Well, the injustices were always there, um, but they were much accentuated through technology, and so society had to kind of catch up with that that there was this new invention of the factory, basically. And we need to figure out what are the rules. And uh, that took that took some time, but I think that we've definitely figured that out. And unions, unions and strikes were a big part of, of making that happen. So Marx wasn't the only one that had a solution to this. And uh, I would argue it's, his solution wasn't the best one. Uh, but he saw these two warring factions. And he said that the way forward is through class struggle that the bourgeoisie need to rise up against the proletariat. There needs to be a revolution. And this is why Marxism is always tied to revolution, that the bourgeoisie need to rise up. The, the, the proletariat need to rise up against the proletariat. And there needs to be this brief, you know, what do they do when they win? They all storm, you know, they, they, they conquer uh, the king, they decapitate the king, they steal all his money, now what? Are we able to move into utopia right away, this perfect state? No, not yet, because there's a lot of craziness happening in society after a reformation, after uh, a revolution like that, after a military coup. And so he said there needs to be a brief dictator, a brief period called the dictatorship of the proletariat, where the revolutionaries are going to have a dictatorship, where they're 100% in control, they institute martial law, and for a very short period of time, they're going to force everybody to become communists and live communally. Um, but in a very short period of time, once this has been enforced, once people get figure out that this is how this is the new normal, and this is how things are going to work, and people realize actually it's better to be equal, and you know some of these forces that that sowed the seeds of, of of capitalism and things have been eradicated then pretty soon people are going to wake up to how good it is to be in a communist system. And then we can emerge into a utopia. Utopia is a fancy word for kind of heaven on earth. 
that he really believed that we could get back to what Rousseau described as um, the noble savage. We talked about that in the previous podcast. Don't get mad at me for saying that. It, it's, a, it's an intellectual term, the noble savage. Um, but we can get back to this perfect unity with nature, perfect unity with, with our neighbor, perfect peace and harmony and sharing, and nobody has more than anybody else. It's all equal. It's all fair. Um, all the wealth is redistributed in a, in a fair and unbiased way, and there's no more wars. There's no more conflicts. Everybody's happy, and everybody's fed, and, and everything is perfect because this is, after all, um, how we're meant to be. And certainly we can see that tying back to Rousseau, tying back to John Locke, tying back to um, to, to things, uh, you know, to Enlightenment humanism in the previous century. So, uh, Marx died um, in 1883, just before the 20th century. And his thoughts really um, became disseminated through the Communist Manifesto and through Des Capitas. Um, oh, one of the things I need to mention is that it probably comes through loud and clear, but capitalism is bad. The whole system of money and of buying and selling and of, you know, you Henry Ford inventing cars and selling them and becoming filthy rich um, through exploiting people in his factories, this whole system is bad. The whole thing. So capitalism is bad. What ought to happen is that we all ought to just you know, get back to nature. Most of us should be farmers. Some of us should redistribute the food, redistribute the wealth. Um, but that we shouldn't have this um, this idea of individual personal possession, individual money, individual um, stuff. You you should pe- the the whole problem. The whole problem uh, would be fixed if we didn't have individual stuff and this whole capitalist system of buying and selling and having money that this ought to be replaced by socialism and, you know, Marxist system. So, um, the 20th century, um, Marxism had its day very much. So Russia was the first one to really implement Marxism in 1917, right at the beginning of the 20th century. Went through World War One and World War Two, and then <clears throat> under Stalin, really enforced Marxism after World War Two, um, and uh, was Marxist for seventy-four years, so the longest-running country uh, to to implement Marxism, forty-seven years and forty-seven days. Not that anybody's counting, um, and ended Marxism in uh, Russia. Ended in nineteen ninety-one. <clears throat> uh, China is the next longest country, uh, as far as I can tell. Um, so sorry, actually, Ukraine and Belarus are um, were um, Marxist for 72 years and 70 years, respectively. And then China has been Marxist for 69 years. Um, there's lots of little countries, it's hard to keep them all straight, uh, that have either previously or currently uh, experimented with Marxism. But Russia and China and Vietnam are kind of the main ones that we're aware of. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, for China, uh, they started being Marxist in, where's my information here, October 1949. And um, in some form, although it's certainly changed, they're still Marxist uh, communists today. Uh, and then there's lots of other countries that have 
experimented either full-on communism or else uh, more commonly now are implementing forms of socialism into their government without fully um, w without fully implementing it and I just saw online that uh, Canada is one of the top 10 most uh, socialist countries uh, and I want to argue in a little bit that um, although we're influenced by Marxism uh, it's not Marxism it's not true Marxism um, you can take care of the poor you can have even global health care and this isn't the same thing it, it there might be some motivation for Marxism but I want to argue that uh, Canada is not a Marxist state um, okay so so Marxism the point here is that Marxism has had its day um, and it's been tried so what are the what have we seen from full-on Marxism as it's been tried very thoroughly in Russia a long test um, nobody could credit could fault the Russians for not caring enough about Marxism or not applying it you know accurately enough or or thoroughly enough uh, as well as China um, you know uh, very um, rigorous application of it what we've seen is um, five things here dictatorships that Marxism was supposed to go to this short period of the dictatorship of the proletariat that a small group of people was supposed to seize power um, kill all the people in, in charge, uh, take their stuff, redistribute it, and then there'd be this brief period of re-education, and then we'd move into this utopic state. Um, it didn't happen anywhere, ever, that we moved into a utopic state, that anybody moved into a utopic state. Um, the history of Marxism, you know, full application Marxism, has been a history of dictatorships. Uh, from, you know, Stalin in, in Russia... Uh, Castro in Cuba, um, Mao Zedong or Chairman Mao, who was uh, the the Chinese Communist Revolutionary, um, these are people that that stayed dictator for life, which, you know, has been something that um, that the West has been struggling with since before the time of Christ. This was something that the Athenians, five hundred years before Christ abolished that you can't be dictator for life you can't be leader for life um you need to be democratically elected um you can't pass on leadership to your kids and this was something that was lost during the middle ages because society was too chaotic it wasn't sustainable there needed to just be something to hold on to stabilize society and so we kind of gravitated towards monarchies again uh, which you know was necessary for a time, but then it was replaced again with democracy, which really is a better system. It's a better way of doing things. And um, what we've seen is that Marxism rolls us back to this older, uglier, darker way of doing things, where one person leads for the, their entire lives. You know, and this is what we still see, uh, you know, in North Korea, and we still see in other places. Some some Marxist countries, fortunately, are able to have some sort of a democratic system. The problem with democracy and Marxism is that there's so many people that don't want Marxism that they keep electing non-Marxist leaders. Well, that's one problem. And so the, it, the dictatorship needs to hold the people in check to force Marxism down their throat, or at least down the throat of the people that don't want it. Often the people that have the money don't want Marxism. The other problem with Marxism is that it gives all the 
power to a small group of people. And as we've seen time and time again, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And if you want to see an absolute corruption that, that power can bring, just have a real good look at the life of Stalin and um, how many millions, tens of millions of people that he exported to, well, that he just plain killed or that he exported up to Siberian work camps. So the history of Marxism has been a history of dictatorships. It has not moved beyond this to you know some utopic state. Um, in some cases, it has compromised on its Marxist ideals and said, let's have democracy. Uh, but democracy was never part of Marxism. When, it, when a Marxist state moves to democracy, it's not as though Marxism has won. It's, they've kind of given up a little bit and compromised on their Marxism. So let's not get too excited about, you know, Canada is a Marxist success story. It's not a Marxist success story. And it's a success story because we're not Marxists yet. And hopefully never will be. It's controlling and there are human rights violations. Um, Marxist countries are places that people want to leave, but they can't because there's walls and barbed wire and guns. You know, we had the, the Berlin Wall in Germany after World War II. Russia got part of Germany, made it, made it Marxist, communist. And people wanted to leave, but they couldn't. Why? Was the wall there to keep the, the capitalists out? of this utopic state, you know, like over there, it's the Garden of Eden and in here, you know, it's capitalism and consumerism and it's terrible. No, it was the other way around. People want to leave communist states. People want to leave Cuba. People want to leave China. People want to leave North Korea, but they can't because the government keeps them in. So that's one violation of human rights is this, you know, like controlling your people, keeping them in, um, and, uh, you know, certainly that phenomena of trying to keep the people in illustrates that there's something deeply wrong with how the country is running if everybody wants to run away. I mean, if all the rats are leaving the ship, it's because the ship is going down and the ship very much was going down. There was, um, you know, the, the communist government uh, brought spying on their people to a next level. Um, you know, as technology came out to have bugs in people's rooms, to have, you know, tap phone lines. And, you know, there's a whole KGB, this whole secret police whose only job was to spy on their people and to keep tabs on them. Um, to the point where, um, I have a friend that taught, uh, a cultures class that I, I, um, enjoyed a few years back. And he's, he was a missionary in Russia for, um, a good amount of his life, around 40 years. And he said that Russian culture, you know, well, he was recounting a funny story about um, a woman from Russia came up to him after he uh, spoke in a church and she was so excited to speak to somebody in Russian that she ran right up to him and just forgot about American culture and got right in her into his face and started talking to him. And this guy's wife was kind of scandalized because after church, this woman ran up to him and it looked like they were making out in front of the church. And, um, you know, it, it was kind of a funny story because it didn't happen to me because his wife was quite irate. But the fact is that in Russian culture, that's what you do. You go right into each other's faces, men with men, women with women, women with men. It's not sexual. It's just, I've got something to say. It's super important. And I'm going to whisper it in your ear because the KGB might be listening. 
and and the invasive spying of the Russian government on its people was so pervasive over seventy years of Russian of the communism um, that has actually changed the culture and it, culture changes slowly normally like shaking somebody's hand you know like that's a very ancient custom you know it's like probably older than Christianity like those basic cultural things that we do they change very slowly normally but this was such a profound thing that anyways um spying on their people um there was uh somebody that uh, a girl that escaped from north korea and and she you know gave a tearful testimony of what or tearful re- recounting of what it's like that's makes its rounds on facebook uh especially when when nations, you know, try and do government, do peace with North Korea. And it's reminded, there's a reminder of, you know what, North Korea is a really terrible place. And she said, we don't even have a right to think, you know. My parents told me, don't even think that, you know, our government is not good, that we are not living in in paradise. Don't even think these thoughts because the government can read your mind. And she grew up literally believing that the dictator of her nation could read her mind if she thought bad thoughts, you know, she would be sent away to a prison camp as many of her friends had been. So there's this invasive spying on the citizen. There's imprisonment, torture, and thought policing. Um, you know, China has prisons where they send people um, that don't agree with the government. Many, many Christians, and there's a... Um, uh, a religious uh, order that a new religion that's been fo- founded in China. It's kind of a combination of Buddhism and and different ideas, and it's ex- extremely persecuted by uh, the Chinese government to the point where they're put in prison, their medical information is taken, and literally this is actually happening today. Their organs are harvested and given to deserving citizens. That it's literally gone to that point, guys. Um, in in this communist country, um, as well, of course, China had the one child policy, which meant, um, for one thing, that three generations of people had the government telling them how many kids they could have. Like, how is that the government's business? How many kids I have? And enforcing forced abortions. Like, can you enter into that for a second? That the government is going to kill my baby, my unborn child. I will never have a chance to meet this young life. Um, and there's stories of you know women being beaten or things like that, like these terrible, you know. Anyways, um, terrible human rights violations perpetrated by the government over their people. Overly invasive population control. These are some of the things that we have seen over the twentieth, the course of the twentieth century in Marxist countries. Um, murderous, uh, the final solution to dissent, because dissent is a major problem for communism. Everybody has to be on the same page or else communism doesn't work. If one person is, is hoarding all the wealth for themselves, then the whole communist system doesn't work. Um, and so communism is continually trying to root out dissenters and root out, um, people that might be trying to do a capitalist, um, system. And, uh, you know, there's re-education programs and there's work camps, but the final solution ends up being, you know, uh, off with their head, uh, just killing them. And again, the statistic that over 100 million people over the 20th, course of the 20th century were killed, 
um, by Marxist governments. So, you know, that's just a statistic. And um, uh, Stalin has been credited for saying, but I just found out that likely he didn't say this, but he could have said, uh, based on his life, that one death is a tragedy, but a thousand deaths is a statistic. One death is a tragedy, but a thousand deaths is a statistic. Um, but let's not let that happen. A hundred million, like, enter into the tragedy of that. As I mentioned in the previous podcast, um, World War One killed around 37 million people. World War Two around 60 million people. And that includes around 20 million people that were killed in concentration camps and, you know, by the Nazis. Um, so you put those two together and both of the world wars, you know, you think about how that pulls on us as a society, how the Nazis are like the epitome of evil. They're our touchstone of evil, the worst thing that ever happened. And yet what the Nazis actually did in the death camps was was 20% of what communism has done, what Marxism has done. You know, the the Nazis were only in power for a very short amount of time, you know, like a decade or something, if you look at the whole. And Marxism has had its day for over 70 years. And uh, the control that the, Mar- that the Nazis had was very short-lived, whereas the control of Marxism has been very long and devastating, you know, very devastating. You know, each one of those lives, most of them likely were men. And each man has, you know, children associated with him, a wife associated with him. But even, you know, even saying that, there were families, like a lot of families sent to live in Siberia where there was insufficient, you know, crops to feed people and the winters were very long and severe. Um, Trying to escape the line between being too dark and being realistic. A uh, hundred million is a terrible, terrible number. The Crusades only killed um, seven million people. Less than that. So when you think about how much Western society, how the Crusades are again a touchstone of, of evil and, and of we'll never do that again. We can never go back there. hundred million people dead. This needs to impact us, people. This needs to impact us. The fourth thing that we've seen is that um, these governments are militaristic. That, um, and fortunately, that has calmed down to some extent. But for the most part, you know, Russia, for most of, well, pretty much the entire duration of Marxism in Russia, it was at war with the rest of the world. It was born in, uh, in war during... World War One and Two. I mean, kind of came into its own. It started with the revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution, and then there was civil war within Russia, and then it was World War One, World War Two, and then it was the Cold War, and um, it was a continual, you know, war with the rest of the world as well as as um, you know Vietnam War and you know the Cuba standoff. Um, we see wars and then, you know, in the South American countries and in the, the African countries, the smaller states that, that have tried communism, what we see, saw a lot of there was a lot of internal strife and a lot of another communist party tries to take over and there's another coup d'etat and there's another, you know, it's just this continual turmoil and it's the people that are suffering as one government changes hands with another, with another, with another. 
So we do see this very much militaristic trend uh, within Marxism. It starts in the bloody revolution. Often there is this threat or a reality of continual internal revolt. And um, often uh, an extended war with the outside world. And let's not... Another thing that we can't gloss over here... Like, it's, it's shocking to me. It's appalling that Marxism gets a pass. Like, not only that it gets a pass... But it's often glorified and romanticized in pop culture and in literature and in academia. And you might say, well, that's just, you know, uh, we need to look at things from the other side, other point of view, and we need to be open to other perspectives. Fair enough. But I don't see a lot of positive descriptions or depictions of Nazism. I don't see, you know, any stories of Hitler that kind of glorify him in some way. We know he's evil. We know what happened was terrible. And yet with Marxism, there's this kind of romantic flair to it. And we can't forget that they've killed so many people. We can't forget that this was something that so many people have wanted to leave and left, you know, at great personal expense, at the expense of their own lives often. But also that they had their finger on the red button for over 50 years. You know, they had, well, however long it was since the invention of the atomic bomb, and Russia had atomic bombs, and they were ready to fire those nukes and destroy the rest of the world, you know? And you could say, well, maybe it was America that made them and it was their fault and whatever. But the bottom line here that we can't gloss over quickly is that these Marxists, these communists were ready to say, to hell with the world. The world would be better off without us all. And, you know, I don't think it's unlikely, I mean, you can't do psychology on historical figures, but I don't think it's unreasonable to say that if America didn't have equal amounts of military arsenal to equally wipe out, you know, to guarantee equal and assured mass destruction, um, that Russia very much likely could have started firing missiles at all those capitalists because the capitalists are, are the scourge of the earth. If we, you know, if, if Marxism could have got rid of all the communists, all of the capitalist countries in the world, it likely would have that would have fit with the mentality of Marxism. And we just give it a pass, as though it's not a big deal, that um, that we all could have died, you know. We could be walking around with radiation scars and, you know, most of our friends dying of cancer at 30 because of, of Russia. Um, that could have happened. So the fifth thing that we've seen uh, with... Um, with Russia and with um, communism as it has been tried is an economic failure. Um, in China alone, 45 million died in four years. Uh, Chairman Mao um, was somewhat of a moderate, well, not moderate, but he enforced Marxism. But towards the end of his life, he came up with a policy called the Great Leap Forward, where it was like, all right, we haven't really been faithful to Marxism. Let's do it for real. And, you know, really enforced um, communal living and, you know, uh, the government owns everything and the government's going to redistribute wealth. And it led to a massive famine where 45 million died in four years. A great leap forward. Look it up. Um, as well, Russia crumbled. Uh, and a lot of that was due to financial pressures from the inside. They just ran out of money. 
Um, communism always works well for a short amount of time because they start off by taking everybody's money, all the rich people's money, and redistributing it and funding the government and funding the military. Um, but over the long run, what we've seen is that actually it doesn't work because they don't make any money. Um, and North Korea is, you know, the reports we're hearing about the living conditions of the actual people are appalling because all the money goes to the government and the government is funding, funneling a lot of that into war machines um, that keep the rest of the world in, you know, in suspense and in terror, really. I mean, they're threatening to send nukes over to the United States and they would if they could. Um, but financially, it doesn't work. This Marxist communist thing, it doesn't work. And something that um, I've kind of alluded to, um, but it, it kind of becomes this theme throughout what I see as I study Marxism, is that it's a soul-destroying institution. It's a soul-destroying institution. That It's something that does not bring forth the good in people. In fact, it brings forth the evil. Evil people thrive, such as, as Stalin, you know, Chairman Mao, and and... I mean, um, what's the name of, and Kim, Kim Jong-un in North Korea. It, it doesn't cause people to bring forth the best in themselves. And um, it doesn't create a system where the best of humanity rises to power, quite the opposite. All right, so we're going to leave this podcast here. This is turning into a series, which works well. I think it's a really important uh, subject that, it deserves all the attention I can give it. So we've seen how Marx built his ideas on um, on the Enlightenment ideas of um, you know no original sin, no God, that nature is good, society is bad, and we need to try and get to this perfect ideal utopic state through class conflict and struggle, and that um, you know they they did this through this idea of the rising up of the the working class against the ruling class and creating this new society. Uh, but that what we have actually seen is that it led to dictatorships that never stopped being dictatorships, human rights violations, murderous regimes, militaristic and economic failures. And um, something I'm going to pick up more in the next podcast is uh, a soul-destroying institution that really uh, crushed people's hearts, lives, dreams, and did not bring out the best in people. So we're going to move in the next one to talk about um, critique of Marxism. You might think this has been a critique, um, but it's going to go deeper to talk about what actually, what's the heart problem with Marxism. And then we're going to look at some replies that Marxists might make uh, to my critique. And then we're going to, in uh, subsequent podcasts, we're going to talk about um, neo-Marxism and how these ideas are being applied uh, to race and gender and politics today and what we can uh, what we can learn from that. So this has been Josiah Meyer for the No Longer Be Children podcast. I hope you have a good day and uh, don't vote in Marxists. The end. <laughs>